Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Katie Lambert. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And Katie and I received an email from Caitlin who noticed that our podcasts were keeping pace with her AP U.S. history lessons. And yeah. Caitlin, <laughs> I also learned about the caning of Charles Sumner in A-Push, so it must be a standard part of the course. But she also suggested that we look into a little equine history. So consider it done, Caitlin. That's our subject for today. We're, yeah, we're going to be talking about all horses today. And when Katie and I were initially planning out this podcast, we were like, okay, well, we can talk about all racehorses or Missy Biscuit, Chintatig or something. But um, our research on Alexander the Great's horse Bucephalus for the Battle of the Hydaspes made us curious about the great battle horses instead, whether they're mythological or very real. But first, we're going to give you a little bit of horse history, starting with a somewhat distressing fact, which is that we probably hunted horses for food in prehistoric times. But once they were domesticated well after dogs and cattle, they became our companions and helpers. Yeah, and according to Georges-Louis Leclerc, who was the Comte de Buffon, a French zoologist, the horse was the proudest conquest of man, which I kind of like that quote. I do too, a lot. They were probably first domesticated by a tribe of Indo-European origin that lived in the mountains near the Black and Caspian Seas. And ever since then, we've used them for transportation, tracking herds, exploring new lands, carrying us into battle, but also for fun. So riding and tournaments and jousts. And we have words like chivalry and cavalier coming from horse. And plus, they're just special and honored above most other animals. Greeks built up entire myths around them. Think of centaurs, pegasus, the hippocamp, um, a seahorse, which made sense since Poseidon was god of the sea and of horses. And great men had their horses buried next to them. So we have horses that have been found in the tombs of the Scythian kings or the Egyptian pharaohs. And even the legend of Camelot is completed and rounded out by a horse, um, Lamre, who is King Arthur's horse. That's Welsh. I'm not totally sure I'm pronouncing it right. Probably wrong, let's <laughs> be honest. But on to our list. Um, so why did we pick battle horses? Well, they're obviously really important. Sarah has a good quote for this one from Shakespeare's Richard III. A horse, a horse, my kingdom for a horse. And yeah, you know that as Richard III's line after he's unhorsed. And uh, I'm sure he wasn't really quite so eloquent, but Richard really does go down in the Battle of Bosworth Field when he's unhorsed and cut down in the bog. So a good battle horse is important. That's the end of the War of the Roses. And I guess Richard III's horse probably won't make our list just for that reason. Um, we don't know much about it, but we do know about Roan Barbary, who was the steed of Richard II, who also gets a reference in Shakespeare. But think about all the attributes a battle horse might be called to have. Um, in the time of armor, you'd have to have a huge horse to be able to support a full-grown man wearing just plates and plates of chainmail and armor and armor on the horse. A battle horse might need to be fast, have good stamina, um, and probably the most important aspect is its temperament. Now, you couldn't be too sensitive if you're in the middle of battle with all that noise, I can imagine. Yeah. So, 
Time to profile our individual horses. We're going to start with the one that got us started on this topic in the first place. Alexander the Great's Bucephalus. And the story, or perhaps the legend, a lot of these are just stories, only very loosely based in historical fact, we should say that. But the idea is that Philonicus brings a wild horse to Philip II of Macedonia, who is Alexander's father. But no one can handle this horse. And Philip II has no idea why he's been brought. He's angry about it. Oh, yeah. He's got this unruly horse on his hands, and what is he supposed to do with it? But Alexander defies his father and says that he can handle it. And so the father and son make a bet together. If Alexander can ride the horse, Philip will buy it. If he can't, Alexander will have to buy the horse. And because Alexander's just a boy at the time, this is going to be a pretty hefty purchase for him to make if he loses the bet. But he's smart, and he's noticed that the horse shies away from its own shadow. So Alexander leads it into the sun so that its shadow is behind it. And eventually, the horse lets Alexander mount and ride him. And he names him Bucephalus, which means ox head, and rides it on all his campaigns. And we've already talked a bit about Bucephalus's life in the military, but um, when he dies at the Battle of the Hydaspes, Alexander names a city in honor of him. So that brings us to our next horse, which is El Cid's horse, Babieca. And there are, again, several folktales about how Babieca came to be the favorite steed of El Cid, who, by the way, is the leader of the Reconquista, the rebellion that threw over the Moors. And he's the hero, the hero of, Spain. of Spain. Yeah. So one story is that El Cid got the horse from his godfather, who was a priest, um, Pere Pringos, or Fat Pete, his nickname. Um, the priest offers Sid whichever horse he wants from the monastery, and the monastery has all these beautifully bred horses. And Sid picks this awkward little colt, and his godfather is so upset at him and thinks it's an awful choice and shouts Babieca, which means stupid. And it's unclear if he's shouting at the horse or El Cid, but I'm going to guess it was at El Cid. And the second story is that perhaps El Cid won the horse in a battle. The king of Seville rode to meet El Cid on this beautiful white horse, which was adorned with purple and gold and silver bells, a jeweled bridle. And El Cid says his opponent looks more like he's going to a tournament than a battle. So he issues a challenge that whoever wins will get not only Valencia, but also the pretty horse. And Cid routes the Moors, and although the king escapes, he leaves behind his horse. So whatever the story is, Babiaka carries El Cid for 30 years, even when El Cid is dead. <laughs> this is in caps in the outline. <laughs> it's very important. <laughs> so... El Cid orders his men to array him in his armor and have him ride out on his old horse should he be killed in battle. He does die in his final fight with the Moors, and his men follow his wishes, put him in his armor, prop him up on his horse, and have him ride out promptly at midnight to fight the enemy, backed up by white-robed knights. So creepy. And, yeah, it obviously terrifies the men who have seen him mortally wounded the day before, and they're all, oh, El Cid is risen, and I just have to note, it's a little bit like it's weekend at El Cid. <laughs> <laughs> the screenplay we're working on together. <laughs> Babieca outlives his master and dies two years after he did, um, unridden. 
And an interesting note on breeds here, Babieca was an Andalusian, which is considered by many to be the epitome of a Spanish horse. And another famous Andalusian was William the Conqueror's horse, uh, who he rode in the Battle of Hastings. We could talk about him if we knew his name, but we don't. So That horse's name did not go down in history, unlike El Morcillo, who was the pride and joy of one of our most famous conquistadors, Cortez. El Morcillo was a black Spanish barb stallion, and his name means black with a reddish luster. And the story goes, on the way to Honduras, El Morcillo gets a large splinter in his hoof, and he's really uh, debilitated by this. And he's ferried across a river. You know, they're trying to help him out, but he's not well. He's got bad water, low rations, and vampire bats keep on attacking him and Ugh. sucking his blood at night. Um and it's gotten to the point where Cortez has to press on and leave behind his horse, but he wants to make sure he's taken care of. So he leaves him with the Indians near Lake Patin and, you know, says, please take good care of my horse. And the Indians take this very seriously and treat El Morcillo like a god, feeding him tropical flowers, fruits, and chicken. And I don't know if you know much about horses, but they don't eat they chicken. Don't eat that. <laughs> so the poor horse starves. Yeah, and... So the Aztecs are obviously concerned about the potential wrath of Cortez, and they carve a stone statue of the deceased horse sitting on his haunches, which is a, an odd position for a horse to be in. And they call the effigy Ziminchak, possibly, <laughs> which is the god of thunder and lightning. But later, Spanish missionaries destroy the statue, so you cannot go and see it for yourself. So skipping ahead a bit in time, we get to Napoleon's famous horse, Marengo. He had three white horses, although you were telling me one historian was saying they Jill were really Hamilton. white. Right. She wrote a book on Marengo, an entire book just on him, and she said that his white chargers that are so famous in paintings were actually gray. And they were just painted white in the in the pictures. You know, just to show off Napoleon. But Napoleon's favorite horse was Marengo, who is an Arabian, and he's a small, high-spirited charger, much like Napoleon. (laughs) (laughs) When Napoleon was exiled, he took some of his horses with him, but he left Marengo in Paris. He was, of course, planning to return, which he did. He even rode Marengo in Waterloo, and we know how that went. And that's where the horse was injured. Doesn't go well for Marengo either. No. And on his retreat, Marengo lags behind somehow, and he's captured by another general, General J.J. Angerstein, who tried to use him as a stud, but also that apparently didn't go well. So Marengo outlives Napoleon by eight years as a trophy horse, essentially, and dies at 38. A lot of these horses also die at very old ages. It's kind of a common theme. Uh but Marengo's skeleton is mounted in Whitehall. And, Another common theme. Yeah. A lot of them are mounted. And uh, a snuff box is made out of one of his hoofs. It has a silver lid on it. But as far as the horses on the other side go, we have the Duke of Wellington's horse, Copenhagen, who was the Iron Duke's very best charger. Copenhagen was a difficult horse, even after Waterloo, when Wellington is dismounted to give Copenhagen a congratulatory pat on the on the rump. <laughs> the horse almost kicks him. So I just think of Wellington having dodged death all day long, uh, almost Waterloo. gets kicked by his own horse. 
But as difficult as Copenhagen may have been, he was very good at what he did, known for being unflinching in gunfire and cannon fire. And he was also a surprise fool. Um, Copenhagen's mother, Lady Catherine, which is a little confusing when you see it in print. Yeah, reading this outline, I just kept reading that the Duke of Wellington's mother was in full and didn't really understand. <laughs> so Copenhagen's mother um, had been sent on a British military expedition to Denmark in 1807, and um, she, they didn't know that she was in full. And the Duke of Wellington was in charge of a division in the force at the time, but the mayor ended up producing her full when she got home, and it was named Copenhagen in honor of the siege. And even after the battles were over, the Iron Duke and Copenhagen stuck together. When Wellington became prime minister, he rode Copenhagen up Downing Street to number 10, which, of course, is the prime minister's residence. Yeah, and he must have mellowed a little bit with age. Copenhagen, that is. Um, he was regularly ridden by children and friends at the Duke's country house. And I, I like this detail, too. The Duchess regularly gave him treats of bread, so Copenhagen seemed to think that he might have a chance with all ladies getting a little bread snack and would come up to them very friendly. I would give Copenhagen some <laughs> bread. He died at, again, a very old age, and the War Museum was interested in displaying his bones with those of Marengo, but the Duke preferred to keep his horse at home, buried under an oak, which is nice. Yeah. So moving on to some famous American horses, Traveler, who I think we both agree it is probably yeah, the most the best known. famous American horse. Um, Traveler is General Robert E. Lee's horse, and he's a Confederate gray colt um, who was born Jeff Davis and was a show horse, apparently a very good one, too. Right. But then he became part of the Confederate cavalry and eventually caught Lee's eye. And his owner, Major Thomas Brown, offered the horse to Lee as a gift. But Lee said he was far too valuable for him to accept without payment. So he buys him from Brown and renames him Traveler. And Traveler has amazing stamina and he's very brave. And he even saves Lee's life on occasion. At one point, he dodges a Union cannonball by rearing up on his hind legs. Um, and they're together everywhere, all the way up until the end at Lee's surrender at Appomattox. As one of the terms of surrender, Lee asked Grant that the Confederate soldiers be allowed to take home their own horses. And Grant, considering his own horse, Cincinnati, agreed to the terms. Lee and Traveler also share their retirement together, and Traveler is Lee's companion at Washington and Lee. Um, when Lee dies, Traveler actually walks immediately behind his hearse in this position of honor. And Traveler was buried on Washington and Lee grounds, but because he was so popular, he was exhumed, our our recurring theme. podcast theme. And Even his, applies to horses. <laughs> his skeleton was mounted and displayed at the school. But after, you know, 60 years on display, his bones began to crumble. So the horse was reburied outside the Lee Chapel at the university near the Lee family crypt. And a random note, just looking over WNL's website, it looks like their safe ride program might be called Traveler, which I really liked. We called ours <laughs> Watchdogs. We didn't have a horse. We had a bulldog. No, we had a bulldog. Um, another famous Confederate horse was Little Sorrel, who was Stonewall Jackson's horse. And he was captured by the Confederates and chosen as a, as a horse for Mrs. Jackson. But Stonewall takes him on after his horse, Big Sorrel, doesn't do very well in battle. 
But Stonewall was wounded accidentally by his own men while he was riding Little Sorrel and died shortly thereafter. Um, so maybe not our most successful of horses, but Little Sorrel later became a mascot of the Virginia Military Institute. And he dies at the Confederate soldier's home, which I also thought was interesting. And another horse on display, he's at VMI's museum in Lexington, if you want to go see him. So our next horse, Comanche, is known not as a, um, not for his victories, but for being a survivor at the Battle of Little Bighorn. And he's frequently thought to have been um, Custer's horse, but that's not true. Comanche was actually owned by Captain Miles Walter Keough. Yeah, and he's famous for being the sole survivor of the Battle of Little Bighorn. And I see this in almost every account, that Comanche is the only survivor. But I did notice um, Kenneth Davis mentioned that uh, a scout was allowed to escape by the Native Americans. So, I don't know. If you know anything more about that, email us at historypodcast at howstuffworks.com and tell us. But Comanche is of Mustang lineage, and he's captured in a wild horse roundup in the 1860s. And he's sold to the U.S. Cavalry after he's gelded. And we liked this one little detail about him, not the gelding, um, <laughs> but the, he had a small white star on his forehead. Mm-hmm. So he's the favorite horse of the 7th Cavalry's Captain Miles Kehoe, as we mentioned. And he sustains 12 wounds in his service for the 7th Cavalry. Um, but after Custer's defeat at Little Bighorn, um, when everyone has been killed, a burial party goes scoping out the site of the battle, and they find one severely wounded horse, and that's Comanche, of course, and transport him to Fort Lincoln to recover. And he stayed in the 7th Cavalry, but he was excused from all duties, although he did appear at formal regimental functions, wearing black with backward-facing boots in the stirrups. Leading the 7th Cavalry. Right. And he died at about the age of 29 and is mounted for a fee, and on the condition that the taxidermist would be able to show him at the Chicago Exposition of 1893. And he's still on display. You can see him at the University of Kansas Museum of Natural History. And that brings us to what we were referring to as our bonus horse. Because he's not technically a military horse, but you'll see why why we had to include him. Because he's pretty cool. (laughs) This is Caligula's horse, Incatatus. And there is an old tale about Caligula's love for his horse. And if you'll remember the last time we mentioned Caligula, it was when he was busy having Juba II murdered. Which I really hold against him. Oh, of course. So the Roman historian Suetonius relates a story without thoroughly looking into whether it's true or not. So this also fits in with a kind of mythological quality of a lot of these horse tales. Um, but he notes that Incatatus had a stall of marble, a manger of ivory, purple blankets, and a collar of precious stones. And Caligula even gave this horse a house. And it's also said that he intended to make him a consul. I also read that he was fed gold-dusted barley, and this is, again, probably just some ridiculousness, but it was just so entertaining I had to add it. But this fact about all of the trappings that Incatatus is entitled to under Caligula is passed on as fact between historians. In the second century, we have Dio Cassius recounting basically the same thing, saying, 
Caligula even promised to appoint his horse consul, a promise that he would certainly have carried out if he had lived longer. So check your facts, historians. So this makes us tempted to talk about Caligula more on a later podcast. I think you guys can expect that. The Monsters of History. It could be a series. We're thinking about it. So all week, pretty much, I've been sending Katie pictures of horses and these famous horses on most of my emails. But... Um, I have not been posting them to our brand new Twitter account. I've been restraining myself from too many horse facts, but you should check us out. It's called Mist in History, and we're on Twitter. I did put the gold-flaked barley thing on there, so you would have known that before now if you were one of our followers. So if you'd like to learn more about animal domestication, we have a wonderful article written by former Stuff You Missed in History host Jane McGrath. And you can come to our webpage and search for it at www.howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. And be sure to check out the Stuff You Missed in History class blog on the howstuffworks.com homepage. 